Good morning, church. I invite you to join me as we read from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Dana. Uh, we just formed uh, what we're calling the Renewed Hope for the Future team, and that's a group of individuals from our church who are really trying to figure out how do we communicate to our church family uh, really what God is calling us to and the responsibility of taking care of our facility and desire to see our church continue to grow and also be more and more committed to missions than ever. And so uh, after their first meeting, one of the questions the team asked me uh, was, hey, would you, are you willing to talk about money? Um, because, you know, a lot of pastors don't want to talk about that because a lot of people think that's all the church talks about. And so out of insecurity, pastors don't want to talk about that. And so I said, Sure, when it comes up, uh, because we go through books of the Bible, so basically if I'm talking about something, 98% of the time, it's because as we went through a book of the Bible, it came up. Well, it's up uh, today. Uh, and honestly, this is a challenge uh, in our culture. It's a challenge in our context. It's a challenge for our church. It's a challenge for the church, because uh, we live in a day, specifically in the West, uh, but increasingly everywhere in the world, uh, where there is just an unprecedented level of prosperity, disposable income, and people really like what that brings them, and we're very uh, prone to finding our identity and our worth uh, in what our money can give us. I think that this week and the events that are taking place in our world with what's going on, the, on in the Ukraine is the sober reminder of how fleeting and superficial a lot of these things are and what really matters. And with that in mind, uh, we dive into the text that Dana just read uh, for us today. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17 uh, says that Jesus was setting out on his journey and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we learn from the dialogue that takes place in all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that this is a rich, young ruler. So he was rich. 
Um, where there is such a large middle class, like in our context, it doesn't stand out as much when somebody is truly rich. Uh, but it does in places where there's not a huge middle class, where by and large you have the have and the have-nots. And so uh, in Jesus's day, if somebody was wealthy, you knew that they were wealthy pretty uh, quickly. Um, there was a difference from living day-to-day to having abundance. And so this man is rich. This man is also young. Um, so it's very likely that he inherited um, his wealth. He may have built upon that wealth, but uh, the wealth that he possessed was generational. And that's typically true in a context like his, if somebody's very wealthy, that there's generational uh, wealth. Um, it also tells us he was a ruler. So he had rank. Um, he was in a position of authority. Most scholars believe that he was some type of synagogue official. So he's actually a religious, um, their religious officials were often more like political uh, religious officials, but that's what he was. Or, or maybe he was just a city official, but again, probably likely that he was a synagogue official. It's interesting to note that he runs up. Wealthy people didn't run in that day. They didn't have to. They weren't in a hurry to go anywhere. They had people to do things for them. And so whenever you saw a wealthy person run, if you see the story of the, the prodigal uh, son and the, the father running to meet his son, I mean, that, that's pretty uh, significant to them. And so to see this man running up to Jesus shows an eagerness, a desperation on his part that wasn't common. And then he kneels before Jesus. So again, a rich young ruler typically didn't kneel before people unless they had great authority. So this man recognizes the authority of Jesus. And so he runs up to him and he kneels before him and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, Matthew tells us that he said, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He's asking, how can I earn heaven? What is it that I need to do to earn heaven? And, and I think this is important because I think it reveals where most people are. For the majority who think about eternity, the question they are asking is, how can I save myself? For the majority who think about eternity, at least initially, the question they are asking is, how can I save myself? People think, if there are people who are going to heaven then I can be one of them. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've watched Fox News. I've watched CNN. I've opened social media. If there are people going to heaven, I fare pretty well compared to this group. And so I can, I can get the morals that I need to have if I don't have them already. Or if there are things I need to do, I can do them. And, and, and if it's some of the things I've done bad, I can make up for those things. Or if I need to be enlightened, if I need to reach a certain level of understanding, I can do that. So this man says, I'm rich, I'm young, I'm a ruler. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus seeks to get to the heart of this man and the heart of this man's question. And he asks him, verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what Jesus does is he deals with this man's view of Jesus, this, this man's view of him. He views Jesus as a good teacher. And that's where many 
want to put Jesus. They want to put Jesus in the category of Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or another Moses. Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good leader. He's a good example. He can help show us the way to heaven. So this man looks at Jesus and says, you're a good teacher. And Jesus corrects him. He, he really rebukes him. And he's saying, why are you calling me good unless I'm God? Because God is the only one who is good. And the reason Jesus is saying this is because Jesus didn't come to show us the way to heaven. He came to us because he is the way to heaven. Jesus didn't come to show us the way to heaven. He came to us because he is the way to heaven. You see, God is in a different category when it comes to goodness. He's perfect. He's holy. And most people, when they're thinking about goodness, they're asking the question, how good is good enough? How good is good enough? I'm I'm not perfect. Most of us acknowledge that. So what religious work do I need to do to make up for the fact that I'm not perfect? The rich man thinks, I have money. I am accomplished. I am capable. I can handle whatever this is, whatever it is I need to do. So what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? You see, he doesn't come to God, he doesn't come to Jesus empty-handed to receive salvation as a gift. He comes to God, he comes to Jesus with his hands full of his possessions, of his achievement, of his status, asking what do I need to do to prove that I am worthy. This is how he views himself, and this might be how you view yourself. And Jesus says, if this is your approach, let's start with the commandments. Let's start with the law. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Matthew says that Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And Jesus does not say all 613 commandments here, but based on some differences in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's writing, he does say several And his point is to keep the law, to obey the law. If you want to enter life, obey the law. And this man says, I know the law, and I obey the law. Look at what he says, verse 20. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, we could debate whether or not that's really accurate, but he at least thinks that he he has kept them all. And it certainly shows us that this is not just some rich man who's lived it up in the city and wants to pay back for all his wild ways. This is a moral rich man. He says, I'm not perfect, but I'm probably as close as it gets. You see, this man has it together. He has it together. He's somebody that many people think is great, good man. Things like that are said about him. And he asked Jesus, how good is good enough? Because I can be good enough. And Jesus says, well, only God is good. 
Only God is good enough. He thinks, but I'm a good person. What do I lack? I can keep the rules. I can keep the commandments. And Jesus' reply to him is one of the most shocking and most memorable things of what Jesus says. Verse 21, and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. I think it's important to note that Mark says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I think because of the envy in our hearts, because of the bitterness, because of the jealousy in our hearts, when we think of rich people and whatever that means for us, it's usually somebody who has more than us, we tend to judge them more harshly. We tend to be more um, tough on them and their need for repentance. Again, I think it has more to do with us than them. But it's important to note that when Jesus confronts this man, when Jesus challenges this man, he loves him. He looks at him and he loves him. And I think for us, whenever we see somebody who's clearly living for the treasures of this earth and not the treasures of heaven, we need to examine our hearts before we go to them and for how we look at them. And our desire to correct them should not be because we actually envy the lifestyle they have, but it should be because we love them. And we want them to see the treasure that Jesus is. And I also think this should cause us to realize that when we're confronted about our sin and the way that we're living our life, and we become defensive about it, the real problem may be not that that person who God is using to speak to us is judging us or hating us, but it might be that we love our autonomy and our authority and our freedom and our money so much that anybody who questions any of that Ultimately, we become defensive about, we villainize them for what they're asking. So Jesus looks at this man and he loves him and he says, you lack one thing. Matthew tells us that Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, Jesus knows what this man's goal is here. It's to be perfect. That Jesus uses his language, the word perfect, because this man is talking about earning God's goodness, earning heaven. And he says, if you want to be complete, if you want to be finished, if you want to be as good as God, you want to earn it, if you're truly trying to have nothing in your life that makes you fall short of God's goodness, then sell all that you have and give it to the poor. If you really are sincere about doing whatever it takes to inherit eternal life, then sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Now, a lot of people have said when they read this passage, well, what Jesus was saying to this man was not to really sell all that he has, but that he must be willing to sell all that he has. Um, and I've done some study, and I don't know where that comes from in Bible study, but I've done some study of us, and I do know where that comes from. It comes from our hearts, that's what we want to be the case often. 
Now it's true that this isn't a uniform command to all people. The passage is not saying, so everyone who wants to follow Jesus needs to go right now and sell their possessions and give to the poor. The application here is not everyone who's over a certain income level or net worth has to sell everything if they want to follow Jesus. But this man was, excuse me, but Jesus was telling this man to sell everything that he has. Do not be mistaken about that. And if you're the kind of person that says, ooh, okay, not everybody who wants to follow Jesus has to sell everything they have. I, li- I like what the pastor Robert Gundry said. He said, the fact that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all of their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people that he would issue that command. So if you think, I don't have to sell everything to follow Jesus, then it's very well possible that Jesus' call on your life because of how much you cling to that might very well be that same call. Now, the main objective of this text and in Jesus' command is for this man to follow Jesus. That's the primary call here in this text is to follow Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to this man is that your identity in your possessions is hindering you from following me. But if you're willing to get rid of all of that, and if you do get rid of all of that, then you can come and follow me. And you will have treasure in heaven. You will have treasure in heaven. You see, this, Jesus is saying, there's nothing you can give or do to receive eternal life. It's a gift that is given to you. I I have to believe, and maybe I'm taking a little liberty here, that this man's life, in many ways, had always been transactional. I mean, he has been, he's a rich, young ruler. And so he adds value to a lot of people's lives by what he's able to do for them. And then I have to think that society had just affirmed this to him, that people saw him more for what they could give him, them, than who he was. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I don't want anything from you. I want you. Jesus wants this man to realize that God doesn't want anything from him. He wants him. And Jesus wants you to realize that God doesn't need anything from you. He wants you. I mean, David realized this. David, one of the you know, wealthiest relatively men who've ever lived, had accomplished a lot, really came up from, you know, to be king out of being a shepherd. In Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, he says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. David says, it's not really the sacrifice, the lamb, the, the dove, the whatever we're giving God that he wants. It's the heart behind that that he wants. You know, at, at Christmas time, we exchange gifts as a family and my children give me gifts. And, you know, honestly, 
they're, they're, they're not gifts that I necessarily need. Uh, sometimes, not, not the gifts that these kids in here give me, but the other kids uh, give me are things that I didn't even necessarily want, but what brings joy to my heart is the fact that my children want to give me a gift to show me uh, their love for me. And, you know, in, in the same way, God doesn't need anything we have. But he wants the heart of his children to give to him and love him. And where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And so if we're really looking for God, I think this brings us great joy. But if we're clinging to our possessions, if we're clinging to our money, if our identity is in being a rich, young ruler, then I think this might fill us with great sorrow. And verse 22 says that this man was disheartened by the saying, and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He comes to the authority. He runs up to him and he kneels before him and he says, hey, what's wrong in my life? What needs to be different in my life if I wanna inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the diagnosis. He gives him what needs to happen. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't like it. I mean, if you've ever been to the doctor and, you know, the doctor is like, hey, you know, here's the health issues going on, but you correct, can correct it by diet. Some people are like, hmm, eat pizza until I'm 65 or not and live to 85. I'll just eat pizza and we'll see how it goes. I, for, for me, sorry to my dental friends in here, but every time I go to the dentist, they're like, hey, you have a cavity uh, or you don't, but about once a year you have a cavity, um, but you could save some money and a filling if you flossed. And I'm like, nah, just pay the 50 bucks and not floss. I'm really good. <laughs> I don't need a lecture afterwards, by the way. <laughs> but what happens here isn't funny. It, it, it's sad. He was a rich man. He didn't just have a financial problem. He didn't just struggle with greed his identity was in what he had. And he was willing to do anything for eternal life. But not this. And you have to realize that what this means is he says, if turning from you, Jesus, means I'm going to hell, then I'll go to hell. Because I'm not giving up being this rich, young ruler. I, Alec asked me to conclude the series they were doing on identity this past week with our students, and um, I talked about how people end up in hell. And often what people view about hell is they view like people live a life, they die, they realize they were wrong, they're so sorry, and God's up there saying, burn, baby, burn, you had your chance. But that's just an incorrect view of hell. Uh, Tim Keller articulates it very well. He says, hell is a freely chosen identity in something other than God that lasts forever. You see, people are in hell because they said, Jesus said, you wanna go to eternal life? Surrender to me. And they said, no, I am who I am. And I'm not changing. I can't help how I feel. This is how my heart feels. So I'm gonna live this lifestyle. I'm gonna be this way. Even if you say differently, God, I'm gonna do me. 
You see the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke's gospel where the rich man is in hell and he doesn't want to be burning anymore, but the rich man still interestingly says, Abraham, tell Lazarus to bring me water. Abraham, tell Lazarus to go and tell my family members what to do. He's still who he is. He has built an identity on being a rich man. And Jesus is saying that people whose identity is being a rich man, they're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. Look at what he says, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is generally true that things are easier in this life for people with wealth. Money opens doors for people, but it is difficult, the Bible says, for people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says just how hard it is, verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some have said there's this needle gate in the wall of Jerusalem, and, and that's really what he was talking about. Um, and so you had to, you know, make the camel go low and get all, everything off its back to get it through the gate. And, I mean, that preaches well, but there just really is an evidence for that. I think Jesus is saying that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's impossible, Right? I think that's what Jesus is saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. There are no rich people in heaven, only God's people. There are no rich people in heaven, only God's people. And you can take that word rich out and fill it in the blank with whatever. There are no, whatever you wanna find your identity in people, only God's people. And As a Christian, you first and foremost realize my identity is not in the things that I do in this world, but in Christ. And the things that I do in this world then need to be seen through the lens of my identity in Christ. And what's what's concerning is when people begin to talk about heaven, and that heaven begins to be conditioned upon or, or even centered around earthly things. When people talk about heaven, about just being with their spouse for all of eternity. When the Bible doesn't promise us that, and I would say that there's even a better case from the scripture that we actually won't be married in heaven. Or when people begin to talk about heaven and it's just about being with their family, which again, we don't know what family relationships will be in heaven. And just because somebody was in your family doesn't mean they definitely understood the gospel. When people begin to talk about heaven and so much of heaven is talking about the lifestyle they wish they could have on earth or the activities they wish they could do, or having all the answers. And the reality is heaven is, what the Bible tells us is not clear about what our relationships will be in heaven, or what we will do in heaven, or how much we'll know in heaven, but here's what's clear. Jesus will be there. And the glory of Jesus will be revealed. And Pain will be no more and sickness will be no more and tears will be wiped away from our eyes and there won't be a need for a sun or a moon because the glory of God will illuminate heaven. And I tell you what, I might have a lot of questions and concerns or if you wanna use that word about what heaven is, but if Jesus is there, I wanna be there. 
And if that's not true for you, then I don't know that you fully grasped why you were created and how good God is and what your identity should be. And if you're clinging to something other than Jesus, then it's hard for you to enter the kingdom of God. If something else is your identity, then it's hard to say truly Jesus is all that matters. And the disciples were confronted with the difficulty of this reality, and they said this, verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They took a look at their culture, the religion in their day. We might take a look at our culture and all the conditions and reasons that people are Christians and think, really, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. God changes rich young rulers into Christ followers. God melts the heart of stone. God helps the blind to see. That's what Jesus wanted this rich young man and these disciples to see. And that's what he wants us to see. And so when he says with all things are possible, God, all things are possible, he's saying God can change anyone from living for this world to living for heaven. And I think that's important to note because when people say with God all things are possible, they typically use it to mean the exact opposite of what Jesus intended it to mean. With God all things are possible is not a verse about using God's power to give us earthly gain. It is a verse about God's power to change our hearts to pursue him instead of using him to justify our pursuit of earthly gain. With God, all things are possible. It's not a verse that we use about God's power to give us earthly gain. It's not a verse that says we can win whatever game we're in or succeed at whatever we try. It's a verse about God's power to change our hearts to pursue him instead of using him to justify our pursuit of earthly gain. It's about this rich young ruler that wants God to give him validation that he can do whatever it takes to have eternal life, but not change who he is. And yet Jesus says God can change who he is. God's desire is not to show his glory by giving his people a higher standard of living always. His desire is to show his glory through the radical transformation of our lives. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, tied righteousness to health and wealth, and the Bible ties righteousness to contentment. And so I want us to examine our hearts now with three response questions. The first question is this, what do you treasure? What do you treasure? What is your identity? What is what you live for? What do you want heaven to be? You might be thinking, I don't like when the church talks about money. I don't like that you're talking about money right now. I have a problem with it. Then I would say you have a problem with Jesus. You have a problem with Jesus. And the people I, I've come to realize who, who they say, that's my one hang up is, is my money. That's not their one hang up. God isn't the authority in your life if you don't trust him and you're not generous 
Your heart is not grace-filled. You're not a team player. You're not a servant. I've seen this play out all the time. Anybody who says that's the one issue for them, it's not the one issue for them. And if you don't think this is a big issue, familiarize yourself with the scripture. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. James 1.9 and 10 and 11 says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And these are just my favorites. There's much more than this. In fact, the Bible warns us of how money can lead us to hell more than it talks about hell itself. And I am concerned for the number of us in our community who are building identities on wealth and the things, opportunities, and comfort that that gives us instead of living generously to advance the kingdom of God. You see, most of us are rich. We live in this country, we're rich. We're most, the average income in our country is richer than 92% of the world. We have big houses compared to the world. We have more than one car. We have clothes for more than one to two days of the week, and we take vacations. We have running water, and we have toilets. The great medical needs in our world are clean drinking water and malaria, and our great medical need is that we eat too many chicken McNuggets. And we are not living radical for the kingdom of God, giving generously. Now, I'll say this quickly. You don't have to be rich to idolize money. Many people who don't have money stay full of bitterness because they, they live for money and God just hasn't given it to them. Will Smith once said in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent my, no, that's not what I was gonna quote him on. Will Smith once said, money and success doesn't change people, it merely amplifies what is already there. You see, how we spend our money, how little it is or how much we have, our budget is a very clear, very measurable indicator of our hearts. Where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Go the other direction, I'm pleading with you. Go the other direction so people wonder, what is your treasure if it's not what mine is and what our context says? And you can tell them, my treasure's name is Jesus. And that's why I live the way that I live. A second question I would say to you is this, are you coming to Jesus like the child or the rich man? If you notice in our reading, the story of Jesus inviting the children to him and then saying, you must come 
to God like a child to receive the kingdom of God. And this story that we just read are right up next to each other. And so I would ask you, do you see your real need for God? This is why there are so many unsaved people in the church or that consider themselves spiritual or religious. They've bought into this idea that to be worthy of God is to agree with certain truths and then just do your best for him. And if you have the means, it is easier to self-medicate instead of really allowing and causing yourself to face the consequences of sin. Generally, money allows for an escape. It causes people to be partial with you. People treat you better. Even church leaders treat you better typically. And money allows your fall to not be so hard. But if you haven't dealt with the issue that children know, that we can't rely on ourselves, and when it comes to the issue of the soul, we can't do anything about it and our need for forgiveness from God. That's where we have to be. And I would ask you, is that where you are? And the last question is this. If you are pursuing Christ, if your identity is in Christ, then who can you look at and love and call to find their identity in Christ? Who do you know that is living for the treasure of this world and you love them and you want them to see the joy and hope that they can have in Christ that is fulfilling? It's hard in our context. You'll be called a Judgy McJudgerson if you question anybody's way of living. But listen, regardless of how good this life is, most people are bothered by the thought that there is more. And look at them and love and call them to Christ. May we examine our hearts. I know for me, Jesus says, hey, no one who looks back at the plow and puts, keeps his hand on the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. And I know there's this temptation when pursuing Christ to think, how would it be different? What could I have? I mean, Christy and I have had to have conversations where if we're gonna give you know, generously a, a certain percentage and above what we feel the basement is, there are just things we can't have and can't do in our life. And, and other people might have them and be able to do that. And we don't, that's not for us to judge, but we know for us, they're just sacrifices, which are not sacrifices, but we have to make, but we're gonna prioritize our hearts being where God wants us to be here because of what he's done for us. And we're gonna seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and he'll add to us what he wants to add to us. And I think we have to say, I'm satisfied in the direction I'm headed in following Christ and my hand is on the plow. I hope that's you today. And as we move into a time of response, I just wanna invite you to confess your sins to God. Confess your heart to God. Maybe, maybe it's that your identity is in being or a rich young ruler or whatever it may be. And the truth is you won't pursue Christ if it means giving that up. And I hope you're confronted with the reality of what that says to a holy God who has created us and has given his life for us. And, and maybe there's just some of these things that you keep wrestling with that are hindering you from pursuing him the way you should be and living for him. And I just pray you would humble yourself before him. And then ultimately, 
if we are being faithful to God, and I know we're not perfect in that, but if we are headed in that right direction, then may God fill us with love and boldness to help people see what treasure Christ really is. And may we look at them in love and talk to them. Let me pray for us now. God, I pray now that you would, your spirit would work in our hearts to convict us how you want us to respond. God, if there's somebody who they, just, they know, the truth is, They've claimed you, they've prayed to you, they've said your name, they've quoted scripture, but you have just been a means to accomplishing their identity and the things that money can give them. Lord, help them to be willing to lay that all down. I don't know what that means for them specifically, but I know that you're the treasure we should be living for. And then Lord, I just pray that you help your church treasures you to abide in you and for that love that we have for you to flow out of us into the lives of those who are around us and God use this body of people to do radical kingdom work because we want to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and I pray this as we respond now in Jesus name amen